Excellent. Good morning, everybody. Oh, a couple of little squeaky creakies. Bear with us. Okay. Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, I am Helen. Uh, I am married to Christian. I have an English accent, but my surname is Bredenkamp. Something along those lines. I know. Wrap your head around that because we're getting started now. Um, I am part of the eldership team here at Glenridge, and it is my honor and my privilege to be able to continue speaking to you this morning from the book of Joshua. We have been working through a Joshua series, and um, this morning I get to continue on that journey. And I have a, um, I have a, a biased, deep affection for this biblical character of Joshua, because I, too, have a Joshua. My youngest of my two boys, um, my middle of my three children, is a Joshua. So I love Joshua, because before my Joshua was born, we felt God speak to us about our Joshua and who he would be. And I am also a highly relational person. I love people. I love getting to know people. I love understanding people. I love seeing what makes people tick. Um, and so for me, being able to speak about a character that I have a deep affection for and get to speak about a person and what makes him tick is just awesome for me. That's my sort of happy space. And this morning, the message that I am going to be speaking to you about um, came about in a funny way. So about probably nine months ago, I was making peanut butter sandwiches in the kitchen with Joshua, my Joshua, and um, we were just having a little bit of a chat. We were talking through the fact that there were some kind of difficulties that he was facing at school and um, with friendships and just some of those sort of intricacies and challenges that we faced parents. And just as we were talking about it, I felt God just interrupt me. And he interrupted me and he gave me fresh eyes with which I was able to see my boy. Okay, just to, just to say something quickly. I've learned a phrase from a phenomenal woman where she talks about the fact that she leaks. Okay, so... I'm going to leak. My eyes are going to leak. I can feel it already. When the Holy Spirit is working in me, I'm a crier. I wish I was a laugher. I'm not. I'm a crier. So bear with me. It is um, all good. I'm fine. I'm not about to collapse in a puddle. Um, so bear with me. But anyway, back to the story. So God gave me um, fresh eyes with which to see my son. And in that moment, he just gave me these prophetic words to speak over my son. Words to build his confidence and to build his, his courage. And words that spoke about his sonship. And in that moment, he also spoke to me about character and about obedience and about leadership. And those words and those, those, those lessons that God spoke to me in that peanut butter sandwich moment have just stuck with me. And they've been kind of working inside of me. And I felt God say that I needed to share some of that with this family this morning. 
And so I am going to be speaking specifically from Joshua 6, and I'm going to be speaking from that well-known, solid Sunday school story of the Battle of Jericho, or the Fall of Jericho, as it is known in my Bible. And um, I am specifically also going to be talking into what we learn from that Because the fall of Jericho, the battle of Jericho, whatever you grew up knowing it by, is a pretty well-known story. Am I right? Yeah? But it is also a miraculous story. It's an incomprehensible story. And I don't know about you, but I find that when I'm reading certain stories in the Bible that are inconceivable, they are just wildly miraculous, incomprehensible, I tend to read it at face value, and I tend to read it at surface level. And in doing that, often we miss the depth of actually what has been happening, of what God has been doing, and of what God is teaching us from those stories. And so I want to look at the battle of Jericho, the fall of Jericho, with hopefully fresh eyes. And in doing so, we're going to pull out of there some lessons for us. And I spoke to God, how's this for irony? I spoke to God last Sunday morning in the service, and I just felt him prompting me. And I said, God, what do you want me to call the message when I speak? And he gave me the phrase, radically ridiculous. It's like, okay, all right. And then I kid you not, 10 minutes later, Stan said, so Helen, next week. I was like, next week, yeah, what about next week? He said, you're up, you're speaking. I was like, oh, okay. I thought I had another couple of weeks, guys. So how's that for timing, that God has prepared the way that he's given me this title? And as the week has gone on, actually, he's given me more. So this morning, I'm going to be speaking about being radically ridiculous or ridiculously radical. Say it again for you. Radically ridiculous or ridiculously radical. Okay. And the scary thing is (laughs) that I thought that this was a message for you guys, but actually uh, it has become clear in the prayer meeting this morning that God wants me to put my money where my mouth is. And um, God has been saying to me, are you willing to be radically ridiculous this morning and to set aside some of my beautiful structure? For those of you who know me, you know I love structure and routine and order. And God has been saying this morning through some beautiful friends who I will go after later, um, that actually he wants me to be willing to be radically ridiculous as well this morning. So I have an idea of where this might go. And I'm just trusting that God is going to fill the gaps. So I'm just going to pray quickly, and then we're going to start. Father, we just thank you. We thank you that you are good. I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you, Lord, that you love this people. I thank you, Lord, that for the people in this room, whether they have been here for 30 years, for 30 minutes, you love them. And that you chose this moment for them to be here and to be in this room. And Father, I pray, would you prepare our hearts? Holy Spirit, would you just come now? And would you do the work that only you can do? 
Would you come and would you prepare hearts? Would you open eyes and open ears so that we may see the beauty of Jesus this morning? That we might know the love of the Father who is so incomprehensible for us. I just pray, Lord, would you have your way this morning? Amen. Okay, so I'm going to set the scene, okay? Before we hit Jericho, before we hit Joshua 6, I'm going to just get us all on the same page with a little bit of background. So, as well as leaking, I'm thirsty. Right, let's set the scene. Moses has been leading the Israelites for 40 years, okay? He is the tried and tested leader of the Israelites. He is um, known, he is secure, he is steadfast, he's certain. We all know that we hate change and that we love the well-known. Moses is well-known. For 40 years, he is well-known. And then Joshua is announced that he will be the new leader, And actually, he is announced as the new leader three separate times. So in Numbers 27, 8, and I'm trusting that my daughter has not been after my Bible. I put these little colorful tags in, which she loves because they're stickers. So I'm trusting she hasn't shuffled them around. But in Numbers 27, it says, so the Lord, so Moses went to, went to God and he said, give us, he knew his time was coming to an end and he said, God, give us a new leader then who will take us, take the people in and out. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 18, take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership and lay your hand on him and make the priest, make him stand before the priest and the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. So in Numbers, Joshua is, is announced to the Israelites that he will be the next leader. And then again, in Deuteronomy 31, it says Joshua to succeed Moses. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And then thirdly, in Joshua 1, Joshua is installed as the new leader, and he is commissioned and he is given full authority to lead the Israelites. So, I think it is fair to say that there has been great expectation about this new leader coming in to take over the mantle, to take over the reins. That there is great expectation, there's a big build-up, there's a lot of anticipation about what next and, you know, where are we going with this. And we have to also keep in mind that Joshua has been given a huge mandate. He has been given the job that Moses was not able to do. This is huge. This is massive, okay? We need to get a a bit of a glimpse of this. Great expectation, great mandate, great responsibility. And we also have to remember that this was Joshua's first battle. As we come up to the walls of Jericho, this was Joshua's first battle as the new leader. So he is the rookie in this situation. Okay, so all on the same page. I'm now going to read from Joshua 6. And we are going to 
see what we learn about this battle. Okay, Joshua 6. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march round the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout and then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried round the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forwards, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing their trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day... They circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And then I'm going to skip forward into verse 20. And it says, When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everybody charged straight in. And they took the city. Okay, who here has seen uh, Gladiator? The movie Gladiator. Keep your hands up for me. Who here has seen maybe Troy? Lord of the Rings? Band of Brothers? Trying to think of any other kind of epic war movies. But have you got a bit of a picture in your head, hey? They're going to war. We're going to war. We're picturing Hector, aren't we, in all of his valor. And we're picturing Achilles and Maximus Decimus and King Aragon leading the army of multitudes. This kind of tends to be our default picture. And so I am hoping that you will keep that in mind as we think about what we have just read. Because I'm going to be really honest with you here. If I have just been given a big job promotion, okay, I've just been handed over like a brand new company. I'm now like the brand new CEO. I'm going to make sure that on my first day in that job, 
when I have to go in and hold the big board meeting with the whole team and inspire them and come on guys, let's go, new season, new mission. I am gonna make sure that I am well prepared. I'm gonna have had my hair done. I'm gonna have my nails done. I'm gonna make sure that like I've got the smartest, sharpest clothes on and I'm gonna have a briefcase that screams power just when I step in the room. And if someone tells me that actually what I need to do is go into that meeting and lead that meeting in my underwear, I'm not going to be particularly happy. And that is what Joshua was being asked to do. Bear with me if you're looking puzzled, as some of you are. Joshua has gone to the people and he has read them this battle plan, or not read it, he's told them it because God told him it. He has told them this battle plan. And the problem is, and what I'm picturing is that he tells them, and they begin to kind of look a bit confused. And then they start to laugh a little bit because, oh, you had us there. You are so funny. What a joke. What's the real plan? And then he says, no, this is the real plan. And they begin to kind of send furtive glances to each other of, oh, my goodness. What kind of a leader has God given us? Joshua has officially gone mad. Because that is what this battle plan is. It is madness. It is ridiculous. And it's not just a little bit ridiculous. It is radically ridiculous. Firstly, it is radically ridiculous because priests were exempt from warfare. And Joshua is telling these people, priests, guess what? You're in the game. Get your stuff. You're going to war. And everyone's going, no, 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 we don't, we don't do that. Secondly, it is radically ridiculous because Joshua is saying, let's take the ark with us. The ark was the Israelites' most precious treasure. And they decided, or Joshua decided, it's a great idea, let's take it with us. Let's take it into battle. In fact, let's make it the focal point of the battle. Let's make it the focal point of our strategy. The ark of the Lord was not taken into battle. And again, the Israelites knew that that was ridiculous, radically ridiculous. Thirdly, it was radically ridiculous because they were to march on the seventh day. They were about to break Sabbath. We don't do that. Joshua, what is going on? Is the pressure too much for you? Can, can you not cope with the pressure? Let's make a plan. Let's sit down. Let's do some deep breathing. This is probably a little bit of what they are thinking as he outlines this plan. And fourthly, it was a radically ridiculous battle plan because it would mean, mean losing the only advantage that the Israelites had, stealth and reputation. You see, the Canaanites knew of the Israelites. They have heard of them, and they have heard of their incomprehensible victories. And we know that because Rahab in Joshua 2 tells us, a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. The Canaanites are waiting behind their walls in fear. They have heard of the might and the power of the Israelites, and we all know that as stories get told and retold from messenger to messenger, the stories don't get smaller, the stories get bigger. 
So the Canaanites are standing behind their walls and they are picturing like victorious, fierce, formidable warriors marching towards them. They're expecting big. And so you need to then try and picture that scene, hiding behind the walls in fear, big army coming. You need to picture that scene now then as the Canaanites' first impression of this army, the Israelites' first move is to take their priests and take their army and take their most precious treasure for a stroll, for a wander, if you will, around the walls. Because the Canaanites don't know the battle plan. The Israelites know the battle plan, but they don't really know exactly what that's going to look like. So for all intents and purposes, this looks like them going for a wander around some massive walls. So all of a sudden, the Canaanites are like, what? is going on. Who are these people? And just to really make sure that it's radically ridiculous, as they walk, they are to blow horns so that everybody can come and have a good old look at the foolish Israelites and wonder about how on earth have they won so many battles. Look at them. Now, you might be thinking, hold on a second, Helen, that doesn't sound so bad. You know, they're a large multitude. Numbers count. You know, maybe they're like parading all of them around the walls because, yeah, you know, they're kind of flexing their muscles. They're like, yeah, look at how many of us there are. There's a lot of us feel our presence. Maybe that's why. And you know what? You would be right if you are picturing a well-oiled, slick, muscle-flexing armor glinting in the sun as led by the likes of Achilles and Hector and Aragon and Troy. But friends, if that's what you're picturing, you are wrong. You are like so, 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 so wrong. And I've learned this. This is a nomadic army. This is an army that has been on the move for 40 years. And we know from the previous preachers we've heard on Joshua, this is an army that kind of doesn't really know where it's going. It took them 40 years to get to somewhere that realistically it could have taken them a lot less to get there. This is a nomadic army with no place to settle. This is an army of former slaves. They have no formal training in warfare. They have no skilled craftsmen who are custom making their armor and their weapons for them. And so their weapons are basically whatever they've managed to gather along the way. And just so you know, this is a repeat theme that we see of the Israelites moving forward as they take the promised land. Samson used the jawbone of an ass as a weapon. David had a sling. And have you ever read in Judges 3 the assass- when he had assassinated the king? And it goes into this remarkable detail about the specifics of his sword. Why? Because he had a double-edged sword that was so radically out of the norm that an Israelite would have a sword and that it was totally different from what the swords of that period of their enemies looked like. In Judges 5, it confirms that the Israelites were not a well-equipped army. It says not a shield or a spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. This is an army who we continually hear are picking up random utensils and using them as weapons. Okay, so take a step back again. 
Let's picture the Canaanites inside their 30-foot-high walls. And here is this band of marvelous merry men walking around with the priests around the wall. It is ridiculous. The oppression of the Israelites had meant that they were an unlikely armor. Okay, their weapons and their armor were primitive and in short supply. And ordinarily that wouldn't matter because ordinarily they would be kind of in and out before anyone would have the opportunity to assess their military readiness. But on this occasion, Joshua chooses, well, God chooses, to show off their military vulnerability right there for the enemy to clearly, clearly see. And not just once, seven days in a row, God says, go, reveal your vulnerability. It was a radical, ridiculous move. And I don't think it would have slipped past Joshua's notice. He must have known how it would sound. We know from previous stories of Joshua, we know that he is a smart guy. We know that he is a guy who is full of faith. We know that he is strategic, that he is anointed with leadership on him. This has not slipped his notice. He knows how this sounds. He knows what the people must be thinking about him. And he knows that it puts the Israelites at great risk and at a great disadvantage. And yet... He chooses to obey the plans of the Lord, and he chooses to obey them to the letter. See, I think Joshua has remembered. I think he's remembered the victories that God has won for them. He's remembered the odds that have been stacked against them and that God has radically overcome for them. And I think that Joshua knew that when God asks for the radically ridiculous, it means he's about to do something ridiculously radical. Something ridiculously radical, like knocking down 30-foot walls in an instant, like taking a city in warfare without lifting a sword. About six months ago, we were trying to make some decisions with regards to um, one of our children's education. We had been running into some problems within the school context, um, and we were just seeing a real change in, in his behavior, and we were, we were worried, we were concerned. And um, so we had been kind of going back and forth and discussing, and we kept kind of circling back around this one potential this is probably what we ought to do, and then circling back around again and trying different alternative methods and then circling back and circling back and forth. And one particular morning as I was, walking, as I was out walking, I heard God say to me, he asked me this question, if you weren't afraid, what would you do? Helen, if you weren't afraid, what would you do? And the answer flew from my lips so swiftly and so quickly that in that moment I realized that I had always known what God had been asking me to do and that I'd been disobedient. I'd not listened. And I asked myself, why? Why have I not been listening? And I realized it was because I was afraid. I was afraid of what it would look like 
we had managed to get our son a place in, a, in an amazing school that is like a lot of a lot of people in Durban know this school very well and it's like oh my goodness you got him a place there <gasps> that is fantastic and I couldn't help but think what will people think they'll think I'm mad they'll think we're ridiculous you got your son into that school and you are choosing to take him out of it what are you thinking I was scared I was scared of what his teachers would think I was scared that they would think that we were foolish and, you know, dug our heads in the sand and weren't listening to their advice. I was worried about whether I would be able to, whether it was the right decision for him and whether um, pulling him out of school and we've chosen to homeschool him for a season, um, whether that was the right thing and what if I make a mess of it? What if I think it's the right thing but actually I'm no good at it and I fail at it? Fear. Helen, if you weren't afraid, what would you do? I would pull him out of school tomorrow and I would have him at home with me. I want to tell you guys, it took me a little while, but we've done it and it's beautiful. In that moment, I was willing to be radically ridiculous and to ignore some of the critique that may come my way because I deeply wanted God to be able to do something ridiculously radical. And I tell you, he is. I am learning so much about myself. I'm learning so much about my son. I'm seeing all of the potential that could be now that we are in this fresh season with him. And I'm so thankful that God asked me that really difficult and challenging question. And I want to ask you this morning... When it comes to stepping out, to being ridiculously radical, what would you do if you weren't afraid? We know that we are made in the image of God, and we are told that God is love, and we're told that perfect love drives out fear. So what are we afraid of? I have been feeling a desire in my heart for the more. And we, I think as a church, as a family, are moving into a season of more. We are taking ground both within this church family and I believe in this city and I believe in this nation and I believe in further nations. We as a people are being called to take ground. But it only happens to be the ridiculously radical. Friends, the stakes are too high. We can't play at this anymore. We are working alongside and we are studying alongside and we are driving our cars alongside and we are gymming and exercising alongside people who need to know the ridiculously radical love of the Father. We need radical healing. In this family, there are people who need radical healing. No more cancer. I'm done with cancer. I am done with it robbing it that God has for us. 
I am done with the statistic of one in three people in this country have HIV, AIDS. I am so heartbroken and tired of hearing of marriages breaking down. And believe me, I don't say that lightly. I know that marriage is hard work. I mean, I know he looks awesome and handsome. And he dances like a genius king at the front on a Sunday. But as amazing as he is and as 99.9% perfect as he is, we're not, you know, there's, there's challenges. I don't say this like restoration of families. My heart breaks for the children in my son's classes. My heart breaks for the daughter in my daughter's class whose mom was killed in a drink-driving accident last year. My heart breaks for them. We need radical restoration. And we need radical salvation. Guys, Jesus is not a nice to have. He's a need to have. We understand that we have nothing, that we are nothing without him. But there are people who we are walking around past every day, who we are engaging and interacting with every day, who don't know what they don't know. They don't know that Jesus changes everything, that Jesus is the answer to everything, that Jesus is their hope and he is their salvation and he is their freedom, and they don't know that. And why? We are interacting with these people every day, and I'm including myself in this. Are we willing to be radically ridiculous with the lady in the supermarket who is packing our shopping bags, and we hear the prompting of the Holy Spirit say, pray for her? And we don't know why, and we feel a bit ridiculous. But we know that God, when we say yes and are obedient to him, will do the rest. Are we willing to be ridiculous with the mom at the school gates who we can see is having a bit of a rough day? Are we willing to step out of ourselves and our own ego and our own pride and our own concern of what will they think of us to go to her and offer a kind word or a word of knowledge. Friends, are we asking? We know that the Lord loves to speak to us. We know that we have all been gifted with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does the work. It's not me. I'm not that smart. Really, I'm, I'm not that smart. You should see me with an Excel spreadsheet. I'm nowhere. It is the Holy Spirit, friends, we have got to get over ourselves. We have got to get over what will people think of me? Because there are people in front of us who don't know Jesus. And I'll say it again, he's not a nice to have. He's a must have. In verse 2, I'm going to close here. In verse 2, I love verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. 
the Israelites had not done a single thing. They had not done a single thing. And the Lord had already given. Friends, we are the hands and feet. We are the hands and feet of a ridiculously radical God. He does not need us to be smart or witty or clever or strategic. He needs us to be obedient when he asks. He needs us to trust his promises, to believe that he has already taken the victory. If you go and you step in faith and you bring that word of knowledge to that person and they give you a confused look on your face, it's okay. It's not yours. It wasn't your word. Smile, say thank you, Father, for putting my ego in place today, and you carry on on your merry way. We have seen it in our prayer meetings. I love my husband. He does this. He brought a word about a particular invoice or a bill in our prayer meeting a few weeks ago, and it was like tumbleweed through the hall as no one, no one claims it. No one says, yeah, that's me. And then afterwards, later, someone came and said, that was, that was for me. Are you willing to feel uncomfortable, to feel awkward, to feel embarrassed? Because you know that in your obedience and your willingness to set aside yourself, your own agenda, God will do the ridiculously radical. And you may not see it and you may not reap the benefit of the fruit or the harvest of it, but it doesn't mean that God hasn't moved. There was a whole load of other points that I was going to start with, but I felt I just needed to, just needed to do this one point. And in those points, it was about waiting. Go and read Exodus 33. Joseph, uh, Joshua waited in the presence. When Moses departed from the tent, Joshua stayed. He did not leave the presence of the Lord. He knew how to wait. Three times he was announced as the leader, and yet it didn't happen. He knew how to wait. Friends, do we know how to wait well in our uncomfortable, awkward, feels like I put my foot in my mouth there? Do we know how to wait, knowing it's not about us? It's about him. It's about his glory. It's about his work. We need to be a people who choose faith over fear. A people who say yes to radical ridiculous, ridiculousness. Because when we say yes, we will see him bring down many, many, many walls and we'll see those around us receive breakthrough. Are we willing?